Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. We're coming to you on Thursday, April 28th, right after the big news that one of the major contenders in this race has chosen a running mate. Ted Cruz has just tapped Carly Fiorina. And Rick, he's done it right after he got trounced in that, uh, what are we going to call it, mini Super Tuesday in the Northeast? The Acela primary is its a proper yeah. and appropriate name, as a matter of fact, John. And, and it is extraordinary timing. I mean, usually you name a running mate when you win, when you're about to win, when you're the presumptive nominee. That's how it's worked for 40 years. You have to go back to maybe it's a Reagan-esque move because you have to go back to Ronald Reagan to find someone who did this, to, to made a move like this without uh, actually having the nomination wrapped up. And this is not the first plan that you'd have as a uh, as a candidate. I mean, don't don't look at this as anything other than a desperate measure. I'm not convinced that it's a bad measure, but it is born of desperation, pure and simple. Okay, well, I want to I want to talk more about that. But first, also uh, to let everybody know, we are going to be playing shortly part two of the big interview, our exclusive interview with Charles Koch, uh, which really made news uh, across the board this week. Uh you know, his floating his support potentially uh, for, for somebody who wouldn't even be a Republican saying it's possible that Hillary Clinton could be a better uh, next president than a Republican candidate given the current field. Well, Charles Koch had a lot of interesting and surprising things to say. We're going to be playing more of that interview shortly. But, Rick, this is – you mentioned Reagan. This move from Ted Cruz, I mean, he's – 400-plus delegates behind Donald Trump. He's mathematically eliminated. Not only has he not clinched the nomination, he is mathematically eliminated from clinching the nomination before the convention. Yeah, go big or go home. I mean, in, on one level, he's, work, he's operating in a political bizarro world if he's pretending like he's the front runner or that he even has a fighting chance to get this on the first ballot. We're actually going to talk to his chief delegate hunter on today's show as well, Ken, Ken Cuccinelli, about those efforts to, to try to tr- track down individual delegates. But the, the Carly move is, is about him trying to make himself part of the conversation. You know, this is uh, – I can think of a couple of sports metaphors, the Hail Mary, pulling the goalie late in the third – period, you know, or maybe it's bringing in your closer in the sixth to get the key out. You don't want to do that. But the fact is, if you're if, if you're looking like you're on a losing path anyway, do something big. And I, I think it, it's a, it is a bold and unexpected move. It tries to change the storyline and it points out the stakes in this next contest in Indiana, which is literally do or die for the candidates, because Donald Trump wins in Indiana after the wins that he had in New York and in the northeastern states. And he will be the Republican nominee. Is it like throwing the basketball up from midcourt and trying to hope that it gets through that basketball ring? Uh, the on ring. the way down. <laughs> yes, yes, that's that, that, that's what it is. That's is it kind of exactly. like that? N- um, nothing, nothing but net, as uh, as 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 he knows very well. Yes. And, and and I guess Carly Fiorina makes history here. The first woman that we have ever seen uh, chosen as a vice presidential running mate for somebody who is 400 delegates behind the uh, the front runner. That's right. And, uh, you know, she made reference to this, the, the, the historic uh, path of being a CEO and then a candidate for president and then a candidate for vice president, all in that in that order. Uh, you know, I, I think you're seeing the, the potential political wisdom. She's able to square up equally against Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. It's kind of a twofer. But, you know, look, if, if, if you're in the general election uh, mode and you're looking for the fall, uh, clearly Ted Cruz would like to have more choices than just Carly. And as you reported and John, give you all the props in the world for breaking the story and talking about this being under consideration earlier than anyone else. Uh, there weren't a lot of candidates who were, were willing or, or able or under consideration to be Ted Cruz's running mate. 
Well, let's talk about how it actually makes sense, because it, it's easy to kind of ridicule the, the notion of somebody who is so far behind uh, deciding this is the time to choose a running mate. But but there are things here that, that you can see you can see the strategy here. Uh, first of all, he's picking a candidate that's going to help him through the rest of the primaries. This is not so much about picking a general election running mate, obviously. This is uh, somebody that will help him, uh, he hopes, uh, first of all, change the trajectory of this race. The current trajectory is one that he loses. The current trajectory is one where Donald Trump clinches uh, way before he, he gets to Cleveland. This, you have Carly Fiorina. Uh, as a candidate, she wasn't particularly successful, but I would argue that the one thing that Fiorina was very successful at, um, and, and perhaps among the most successful of that entire crowded Republican field, was going after Donald Trump. She had some of the more memorable moments of the early primary debates, uh, including the, that, that very first primary debate where she didn't make the main stage, but she dominated the show so much so, so in that uh, the so-called kids' table debate that first Fox debate, uh, did she won a you know won a place at the at the at the uh, main debate the following time, and it was largely her ability and fearlessness at going after Trump at a time when the other candidates were seemed to be afraid to engage him. Carly Fiorina went right after him, and uh, you know I would argue did so quite effectively. She's a formidable campaigner. She's gotten big crowds on the trail. She's worked aggressively for Cruz since getting out of the race and, and endorsing him. Uh, and you'll have two for the price of one now. I mean, you're going to have another very effective campaigner going out there in Indiana and beyond. And don't discount beyond California. A lot of people point to her Senate loss in California, which was uh, she lost by 20 points. But she but won the primary. it was her primary. Senate victory that matters in California. Right. She had she, a Senate victory in California. She won the primary by 35 points in 2010, and it was a crowded primary field. So she's got a history there. And, you know, the way California awards its delegates, every congressional district matters. She has run statewide there before, obviously well known from her time at Hewlett Packard. So all of those things, to me, amount to this being a good move for Ted Cruz at this time. And it's, it's impossible to call it more than that because we don't know how it's going to break down. But if you look at the, the hand that he had playing those cards. I think this I, I think this is a this is a good play for my mind. It, it puts him in the conversation and it and it, look, if he wins Indiana, he'll be absolutely brilliant. And if he doesn't, then he goes away. Now, we heard uh, almost immediately, it might even have been before this very brief announcement was even finished that we, we you know, we, we heard from uh, Eric Trump tweeting uh, Eric Trump, Donald Trump's son tweeting. This is truly one of the greatest acts of desperation I have ever seen. Uh, well, sometimes in desperation, you can do things that, that are that are smart. You have to do something dramatic. You have to change the dynamic. Uh, that That's clearly what he's trying to do here. But you said, I want to take issue with something you said. You said that Indiana is a do or die for these candidates. Uh, I, I agree with you that it is a do or die for the stop Trump forces. If they can't beat Trump in Indiana, and remember, Indiana, the way the rules are set up, it's it's not quite winner-take-all, but it's close. Uh, the winner gets all of the statewide delegates in each one of the congressional districts. Uh, the winner gets all three delegates. So if, if, this, if Trump cannot be beaten here, he will be on a glide path uh, to clinching uh, before Cleveland. He'll still need to you know, perform reasonably well in California and New Jersey and, and, and the states on the final day. But he will be you know, uh, able to kind of coast his way towards clinching. Uh, whereas if, uh, if, if Trump loses Indiana, he's in trouble uh, in terms of getting to that number, but I think he can still do it. He's, he's had racked up such a big 
margin in uh, in in the primaries this week and in the New York primary that I think that he could actually afford a, a loss in Indiana. It would be tough, it'd make it much harder. Don't get me wrong, but this is this is do or die for the anti-Trump forces, not necessarily for Trump. Yeah, you just tried really hard to disagree with me, but I don't think it's going to work because I, I I think actually I I do agree with this sense that. It is do or die in the sense that if you were Ted Cruz or even John Kasich at this point, if you let Trump win, it's over. And and you saw a, a glimpse of this with the other partnership of the week, which seems like ancient history already. But when John Kasich and Ted Cruz came out uh, late Sunday and said, yep, we're going to work together, we're going to coordinate collusion is what Donald Trump called it uh, and say, well, I'm gonna, Kasich says, I'll let you win Indiana and uh and Cruz says, OK, I'll let you take Oregon and New Mexico. It's a practical decision. Neither candidate is happy about it. In fact, John, the only one who's talking about it regularly on the trail now is Donald Trump. But that, to me, reflects the desperation that's being poured into this one thing. And now, obviously, Ted Cruz doing the ultimate uh, of choosing a running mate. You don't have any big moves left. Because we, we don't know the latest. Uh, you know, we, we have to wait for the next round of FEC reports to find out how much money they have left. But we, we assume that uh, that Kasich is basically running on fumes as he has been, and it, and that Ted Cruz, who's who's done a you know who's who's had a money you know he's, he's done a reasonable reasonably good job, uh, basically better than anybody outside of uh, out of Jeb Bush in raising funds. We I, I would assume he must be sucking wind at this point too in terms of finances. And I'd love to know their internal polling here because you don't do this unless you think you're down dramatically in Indiana because this is you're staking everything on this one date. But look, I I, I think this is. Uh, you, 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 there's about as, as big a move as you could possibly see on the part of a, of a challenger and what Ted Cruz has done. I don't think he has anything big to play. He lays it down in Indiana, and it is going to be a heck of a, of a nasty week in that state. So l- let me ask you the other big story before we turn to our, the rest of our interview with Charles Koch. We had Donald Trump come down to Washington uh, to the Mayflower Hotel, which actually is right across the street from ABC News. We, we appreciated that. Uh, uh, easy to easy to cross the street to to the speech venue, and uh, give what was billed as a major foreign policy address, and it was an address where he actually used a teleprompter and apparently uh, had a speechwriter. Although um, you know we're told that that he took the draft of the speech and he made you know dramatic changes and put it in his own words, but we had Donald Trump come out and give a serious, sober foreign policy speech. What did you make of it, Rick? Well, uh, beyond the. The pronunciation errors. Uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone is Tanzania. Looking, is that what Tanzania, it was? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't think anyone is looking to this for policy per se. They're looking at it for tone. And Trump wants to show that he can be serious. But I think it's a mistake to think about it as if there's a a shift. And now this is the new Donald Trump. There's not going to be a new Donald Trump. I hate to shock the listening audience on here, but every time we hear about the new Donald Trump, the old Donald Trump comes back. Senator Cruz, Lion Ted, and the same thing with foreign policy. Sure, he can give a speech off a teleprompter, and I think there, there's got to be people that, that are reassured by that, maybe on the fence about it, by something like that. But what you see is what you get, and we're going to be back to a much different, much more aggressive Donald Trump very, very quickly. So the teleprompter is going to go back with the mothballs, and uh, he's going to go off script uh, before you know it. I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about a Donald Trump who fails to entertain. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I know that um, Paul Manafort who has been, you know, trying to create this uh, professionalization within the Trump campaign and and steering Trump in a direction of saying you're the front runner now. Now is the time to act presidential. Uh, he had been telling people late yesterday, before the results were finalized in those five primaries, that when Trump came out with five victories, uh, he was going to be giving 
a very short presidential speech that Manafort said it was going to be six minutes long. What did uh, we end up seeing? About half an hour. <laughs> he went. He did one of those till the last dog dies press conferences because he yeah, could. he took questions. He took he questions. took questions. He took questions. He went on. He went on forever. I, I you know, I, I think we're still seeing the internal turmoil there. But I think Trump's having fun with it, frankly. I mean, I think he's playing his advisors off each other, and uh, the the camp that says let Trump be Trump continues to dominate sometimes. So I, I wanted to go through on this foreign policy speech a slightly different take than yours. I, I don't know if you follow Ann Coulter on Twitter. I do. Uh, Ann Coulter, who is a uh, you know leading voice of the uh, kind of how would you describe uh, the uh, I guess the kind of far right we would say right sure the loud far right yes yeah so so I, I just want to read through these are actual tweets from Ann Coulter I won't dramatize them all I just want to share them with you uh, this is while the speech is going on the, uh, the the foreign policy speech greatest foreign policy speech since Washington's farewell address that was one. Watching the whole speech, effing amazing, the candidate I've been dreaming of. And then finally, she gives the link to the speech and says, Trump's full, magnificent foreign policy speech here. So I, I don't know, you weren't around to cover uh, Washington's farewell address, but that was the one that was written by Alexander Hamilton way before the play, by the way. Um, and it warned of uh, foreign entanglements and is still kind of... Uh, and by the way, you know, Washington never actually delivered the dang thing. He, he, he wrote it and he sent it up and, and, and it was never actually read, although it gets read from time to time on the, um, on the, on the floor of the Senate. What, what, what do you make of Van Coulter's take on this? I, I, Secretary of Defense Ann Coulter? I mean, I, there, I, there's, you separate this out a little bit. I mean, Ann Coulter has been among those in the conservative movement who are defending Donald Trump, but it's hard to see where the snark ends in this and the, and the reality begins. That said... You know, even Newt Gingrich was out there praising it. And I, I think the, the well, conservative and actually, movement— more significant than that, uh, Bob Corker, who is the Republican chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, put out a statement uh, that was quite— confident. Foreign Relations Committee, no? Yes, for, what did I say? Finance. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, he's a, he used to be on the finance Big committee. deal, big deal, big deal. Yeah, yeah, big deal. Uh, Foreign Relations Committee, more to the point. And, and he uh, was, was very complimentary of this speech. And look, there yeah. was—I mean— Look, you, you make fun of the mispronunciations and, 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 and you know, some of the structure of, of this speech. But, you know, tr Trump has outlined uh, a vision of foreign policy that is uh, certainly not neocon. It is, it is more restrained in terms of when force would be used. Um, it is a, uh, you know, harkens back a little bit towards uh, realpolitik and, and is uh, about as different as you could possibly be from the vision that George W. Bush outlined in his second inaugural, where he talked about making, um, you know, uh, extending democracy and freedom around the entire world. Uh, Trump's vision is that's not the job of U.S. foreign policy. The job of U.S. foreign policy is to uh, guard our research, uh, our resources, uh, not expend them on things that aren't uh, directly related to our national defense and build a very strong military. Uh, so first, I think you should ask Donald Trump about realpolitik next time you have an opportunity to interview him. <laughs> let's just let's see what that reaction is like. But, but you're right. Look, he even said in his victory speech the other night, you know, I, I won't get us into those disastrous wars like the Iraq war. I mean, th this is what drives him. And it's and he's stoking different passions, even fears inside the Republican Party than Republicans have before. It's part of what it's part of what terrifies so many Republicans about him. Uh, but it, it, what you see is what you get. And I think he is. 
he has cobbled together a foreign policy that some will find it coherent, others will find it less so. But I agree with you that it is by no means a, a consistent through line from that of any previous Republican who's run for president in the last couple of generations. Uh, you know, maybe it goes back to Robert Taft, you know, the, uh, you know, the actual America First movement, a phrase that he actually uh, invokes from time to time. Um, we could ask him about that as well in the next interview. Hey, so um, b before we go uh, to, to the Charles Koch interview, I wanted to get a, a sense from you, Rick, because you joined me on the trip to Wichita, which was, which was quite fascinating. We, we went out there. Uh, we went to the headquarters of Koch Industries. And, you know, there it is uh, in, in, in the city of Wichita, uh, the second largest privately held company in America to sit down with a guy that is the ninth richest man in the entire world, according to Forbes. Uh, what was your impression of what you saw out there? Well, I, I think this was a man who is actually been remarkably consistent over time. Remember that he's 80 years old. He's only been in politics for the last 10 or 15 years, less than that. And and I think you know, a lot of the headlines that came out of your interview and it made a lot of news uh, had to do with his disaffection with the Republican Party. But there's a consistency there, to my mind, of his ideology, which is more libertarian, much more than it is Republican, and much more policy than it is political. He got involved in politics. He doesn't feel like it's work. And of course, you know, coming out of it to know that he's probably going to sit on the sidelines in 2016 because he's disappointed with these Republicans. I don't think, and I don't think you think either, he's about to support Hillary. But I think it, it, this, is, this is a guy that has a pretty consistent business philosophy that extends into a personal philosophy and a political philosophy. And uh, to hear that said to me was just fascinating. And I also get a sense that he's serious about trying to get uh, things done in a uh, uh, in areas that he that he you know the, he's got issues that he has been pursuing. I mean, some of them are the are, are the the very conservative uh, issues in terms of limiting spending, uh, you know, scaling back regulations, including in the environmental area. He is he's not. He's not a skeptic on climate change. He's not one of these guys that denies climate change. Uh, but he, we did have a back and forth on this. And, and he, uh, you know, so he acknowledges that the, the earth is getting warmer. He acknowledges that human activity, CO2, contributes to that. He just thinks it's much less than, uh, than the environmentalists would, would say. And he, and he disagrees. But he's not one of these guys that says it's not happening. Um, but, you know, he's got other areas where, where he aligns and has for years much more closely with Democrats and with liberals, especially yeah, criminal justice reform. And I think he's I serious about that stuff. Yeah, I don't think it's a new Koch brothers. I think it's a refocused oh, uh, I, Charles Koch. I, I think that's what we're talking about. I agree. Uh, so why don't we take a listen uh, to what he said. So this is this is part two. And again, we we actually sat down. This interview went on for 90 minutes. Now, we're not going to play you anywhere near all 90 minutes. But here's one more segment looking at some of those uh, – some of those other issues. Charles Koch. I just want to go through a few issues with you uh, to, to get the kind of your Koch philosophy here and how they would apply to a couple of specific issues. And I want to get to criminal justice reform. But before we do that, immigration, what's your view? What should be done on immigration? Okay. In, to, to me, in immigration, we should let everybody in the country who will make the country better. It's once again, everything is through this land on how do we make people's lives better. Would you be building a big wall on the Mexican border? And uh, I don't think that's productive. As, as I understand it, uh, most of the people who are here illegally got in legally and just stayed. Mm -hmm. Overstayed their visas. Yeah, overstayed the, the visas. And, and, and so I'd let everybody in who, who would get a job, who would be productive, be law-abiding, 
uh, believe in our, our system on the Bill of Rights, uh, that individuals have rights, would be tolerant and make society better. So exactly how to do that, uh, we haven't worked through that and, and that's not that easy. But, and so I would, I would loosen up visas. You'd make it easier for people to come into the United States if, legally. If, yeah, if, they're, if, if the evidence shows they're going to be productive citizens and help others improve their lives. What about this idea of creating a deportation force that would go up and, and round up people that are here illegally and deport them? Well, I would, I would deport people who are making people's lives worse. But people who are productive who are here, I'd let them stay. Would you create a path towards becoming legal citizens for those people? Yeah, but, but to me, if they've been here illegally, they have to go back of the line to people who are waiting to come mm -hmm. in, in legally. So I wouldn't, because they, they, they snuck in or violated the law, I wouldn't let them advance ahead of others who have been trying to do it legally. To me, that would be totally unfair. Mm -hmm. And um, what about uh, military spending? Where are you on military spending right now? I'm I'm where where John Lehman is. Uh, I don't know if you've if you've heard what the, he was uh, Secretary of the Navy mm -hmm. under Reagan. He said uh, our budget of six hundred billion is slightly more than at the peak of the Cold War, and it was plenty then, and it's plenty now. The problem is on what they're spending it on is are the wrong things because of corporate welfare like okay they're congressmen they're making tanks in my or they're making this airplane in my district so they force the military the military doesn't want it say it's not useful then then the the the, the employment in the department of defense has gone up it's nearly a million now of civilians it's gone up like several hundred thousand from under the Reagan era in the in the middle of the Cold War, and the bureaucracy has gotten much worse. And as as Lehman said, it now takes 22 years to get a new weapons system. Under Reagan, it took four years. And then we have, besides the corporate welfare, then we have uh, our defending all these other countries and who are perfectly capable of defending themselves. So we're creating nation welfare where we do it, so why do they have to do it? And we, we have put our, our, some of our finest young people at risk who are, who are dying and being wounded or, 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 or uh, psychologically damaged because they're going off and fighting other people's battles. And uh, so we've got to change our, what we're doing. And, and to me, the, the role of the, the first role of the government, as you remember the Declaration of, of Independence, it says governments are instituted to secure the rights of the people. And so the first obligation of government is to keep Americans safe, of the American government. Mm -hmm. And so we're sending these people off to fight other people's battles and killing and, and maiming them, and are we safer? It doesn't seem so. Mm -hmm. So there's something fundamentally wrong, both in how we're spending it and, and what our mission is, and we need to go back to those basics. And the same things on, on criminal justice reform. We're asking the police to do so many things that makes them enemies in these communities, 
And instead, they, they have to be seen as protectors of the law-abiding people in these communities and, and, and not alienate them so the people in these communities have nobody to go to because they don't trust the police and they have gangbangers and terrorists in their midst. So it's created this nightmare for them. And then we arrest people who, who have crimes that didn't hurt other people or they didn't attack other people, put them in prison, and then they come. Then they can't get a job when they get out, so they become hardened criminals. So it's making crime worse. So what? Uh, so you've been working with the White House on criminal justice reform. That's right. I understand you've become friendly with Valerie Jarrett. Is this is this true? Well, I, I, I mean, I don't know her personally, but Mark Holden, our general counsel, has. So, what what are you? doing with the White House on criminal justice reform? I've heard the president mention your name in a positive light. Right. Could, could well, we're, we're trying to get actual reform passed. I mean, we'd actually, rather than just talk about these things, we'd actually like to get some policies changed that will make people's lives better and, and, and remove some of these handicaps to the disadvantaged so these people can improve their communities. And so that's one piece of that is criminal justice reform. The others are improving the education system, supplementing it as we're trying to do, and and getting rid of these handicaps to getting a job. So you here at Coke have done what they call ban the box. You don't even ask if somebody has a criminal record. Right. But, but, but believe me, we will check whether they're a good person. And there are plenty of people who've been arrested and gotten out who are good people uh, it's, it's like a, a lot of people who leave the, uh, our company and then come back, and after they've seen that the grass wasn't greener on the other side, believe me, they're a lot better because <laughs> they, they say, oh my, it's a, it's a lot better here. But you, this is the heart of criminal justice reform, that, that, that somebody's opportunities shouldn't stop because they have made a mistake. Absolutely. Now, if they're if 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 they're a bad person, yeah, then well, they probably shouldn't get out of prison. Mm -hmm. But if if they reformed or or well, first of all, if 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 they have some kind of nonviolent crime, they shouldn't be sent out in a, a way in a way that they come out a hardened criminal. And do we, do we imprison too many people in the United States? Well, we have five times the the per capita pop prison population of the rest of the world. So that's kind of an indication we do. Uh, and, and a good part of it is the drug yeah. laws. I think that we need to reform the, the drug laws so uh, we, help people, we help people rather than treat them as criminals. Now, if you're, if you're murdering people and hurting, I mean, shooting people and gang warfares and stuff to sell drugs, then then uh, you need to be put away to protect uh, society. But if you're just selling or using drugs, I mean, I mean, there have got to be different ways to deal with that that are be superior to what's being done. And, and, and you've made the point that if, uh, if you're caught with marijuana, you're caught smoking a joint, you can have, have a blemish on your record for the rest of your life. If you're not caught, maybe you become president of the United States. That's it. That's it. That, that doesn't seem like a very just system to me. Yeah. How did how did that all happen? How did how did this come about? Yeah. 
the, the, the United States, the beacon of freedom, becomes the place that imprisons people at a rate of five times the rest of the world? Well, I, I think, I, I think we, we make too many things illegal. I mean, I, I mean the, once again, the, 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 the role... For, well, let's go back to the, the founding of this country. It was, it was unique in, in history. It was the first country that, going back to the Declaration of Independence, that was founded on the basis that individual citizens had rights rather than the, the king, divine right of kings, or the emperor... Uh, was a god and and everyone was at his or her mercy. This was founded on individuals have right, unalienable rights, and those rights need to be equal. And and the extent to which we practice that, we became the the most prosperous country in the history of the world. The problem is we didn't faithfully follow it from the beginning. For example. Blacks had no rights, so we totally violated the Declaration of Independence day one. Native Americans had no rights. In many cases, we tried to exterminate them, practice genocide against them. So those were two monstrous violations that have caused America to suffer, and particularly those groups to suffer uh, in, in horrible ways. And then other groups didn't have full rights. Women didn't have full rights. Certain immigrants, like the Chinese, didn't have full rights. So we violated that. And then we had cronyism and corporate welfare from the beginning. So all the problems we see today had their seeds in violating the intent and spirit of the Declaration of Independence. And so that's what I'd like to see, a rebirth of this country based on the principles on which it was founded in theory, mm -hmm. not founded in practice. So, uh, coming back to Bernie Sanders, and, and by the way, you, when you talk about the prison population, you also sound a little bit like Bernie Sanders. Um, it's a point well, that's, that I'm, glad, I'm glad he gets some things right. That's but, good. But, but he has also railed against repeatedly the billionaire class, and he's not talking about Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. He's talking about you. Right. Oh, I know. He mentions me by name. Virtually every day. Yeah. But when you look at it, and you look, and the Washington Post had a, had a study that showed that in terms of super PAC spending, 41% of the money raised for super PACs came from the 50 top donors. I mean, this is, uh, as Bernie Sanders will tell you, a system that's entirely dominated by a very small group of people in terms of spending. Do you have a problem with that? Well, no. Bernie, Bernie Sanders has raised tremendous amount of money, more than about anybody. So that isn't true. He'll tell you You're, $27 a ton. Yeah, but, but, I mean, he's raised tremendous amount of money. He's raised much more money for politics than, than probably we will, sounds like. I mean, I mean, if you believe the... But what the, about the super PACs, which he likes to talk about? I mean, the super PACs, which are dominated by a handful, a few dozen billionaires. Okay, well, to me, it's, it's not who's putting up the money or where it's coming from. It's, it's what direction will it take us. Why, why are they giving the money, though? Isn't that part of the cronyism you're, 
you're getting at? I mean, well, not you, not from the people who who support what we're trying to do. Okay, so so let's put you aside. You 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 say you've got this this broader vision. You're not trying to make any more money here, make it easier for Coke Industries. Is that are all these billionaires suddenly? altruistic and 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 giving money in politics and i'm not talking about the people in your network i'm talking you know about that that list that 41 percent of, yeah. of the money and, going and, in these and the only way the only people. way you're going to cure that what however you make the rules if the government's giving away these goodies and rigging the system people out of whether it's out of defense or offense that is oh we don't want it rigged against us so we got to play in this game it, it's uh, like Obama said that he wanted to get rid of all these lobbyists. We, if you're giving out more and more goodies all the time, you're not going to get rid of people trying to get those goodies. That's the only way is we got to get rid of this two-tiered system if we want to solve all these what people consider to be problems. Not, do, not have the government give out more goodies or have more control. That's just going to bring more money and more effort in it. And that's why we have two-year presidential campaigns with everybody talking about it, mm -hmm. because the governments determine who wins and who loses rather than going toward a system where everybody wins by helping each other. Okay, so one more uh, issue, climate change. Right. You're not one of these guys who denies the existence of climate change. You're not, you don't deny the earth is getting warmer. Here, here's, uh, I've dedicated last 60 years of my life to understanding the philosophy of science and the scientific method. And I, so I start with, with any, any field, okay, what should the policies be that will make people's lives better? And I try to apply the scientific method. So what, what do I believe the science is on, on climate? Uh, CO2 is a greenhouse gas, it contributes to warming. Look back over that last 160 years of temperature change. The temperature rose about four tenths of a degree in the first 80 of those years when the CO2 went up very little. Over the last 80, it's gone up quite a bit more, like let's say 30%. And it's, the temperature's increased five tenths of a degree. So it's increased one tenth more than it did in the period where CO2 didn't go. Now these models show that it will climb, it should have climbed much more. So we don't have all the answers, unlike the claims of, of, of people who are pushing it. But it, it's undoubtedly contributed to at least that difference. And there are so, many, many other variables. Uh, so go ahead. So, so, so you acknowledge that the, the, the earth is warming. The, the, the Absolutely. It's warmed and, a nine-tenths of a degree over the last 160 years. And that human activity has contributed to that, although you would argue that it is less than... than well, I'm not arguing. Those are what the measurements show. Mm -hmm. It's contributed much less than their models that are projecting catastrophe show. So, so the question is, okay, well, mm -hmm. so, no, the basic question is, is the climate changing due to CO2 in a way that's going to be catastrophic and, and unmanageable? Or is it changing in a mild and manageable way? I believe the evidence is overwhelming uh, that it's, it's changing in a mild, managing, 
a, a mild, manageable way. And so these policies that are being introduced in the United States, as a matter of fact, under their own models, will have virtually zero impact on the future temperature or, the, or other aspects of the climate. And in fact, I think they make matters worse because they get people going after the subsidies rather than innovating. What we're doing in the company is we're working on reducing uh, energy consumption, on, uh, we're in biofuels, we're, uh, we've, we're developing processes to make chemicals out of CO2. So we're, we're doing a tremendous amount, not to get subsidies, but because we believe we can do this economically through innovations. Whereas these policies uh, are making people's lives worse. They're raising the cost of energy for no benefit. And guess who suffers the most? The poorest people use three times the energy as a percentage of income than the average American. So when we raise the cost of energy, make it unreliable, it benefits the wealthy who are, who are getting these subsidies and hurts the, the poorest people. And you look at these policies, matter of fact, some of them generate more CO2, like subsidies to make wood pellets to burn, and then we ship them to Europe. I mean, this is crazy, not approving the Keystone Pipeline. That oil is going to be produced. Now it's going to be shipped by rail or by ship to China. So it generates more CO2. So should a reduction of CO2 be a policy goal? Well, it, I, I, I think it, if, if, uh, if it can be done economically without making people's lives worse, then that's fine. But we shouldn't be setting up subsidies. We shouldn't be doing more corporate welfare, which is hurting the whole system, hurting society, hurting the poor the most, uh, to accomplish that. We need to get towards permissionless innovation. So people, companies like us who are working on it, and Bill Gates who says he's gonna put billions into this, so he can innovate. And so we're for, we're not against any of these forms of energy. We're for forms of energy that make people's lives better rather than worse. Man, I love that interview. A lot of fascinating things out of that Charles Cook interview. Congratulations to you, John, for, for landing it and being ahead of the news on it. Uh, and uh, earlier this week on Wednesday, I got a chance to talk to Ken Cuccinelli, the former attorney general of Virginia, also the chief delegate hunter for Ted Cruz about uh, some disappointments this week and about their strategy looking forward, trying to lock down those delegates. So let's start with the, uh, the latest results. Uh, Pennsylvania, among the states voting, uh, by our count, uh, we're looking at uh, not just a sweep by Donald Trump among the pledge delegates. He gets all the statewide delegates, but we believe also 39 of the unbound delegates uh, committed to him on the first ballot through a variety of reasons. How disappointing were these results from your perspective trying to round up these delegates? Well, certainly we fight for every delegate, and in almost every part of the country we're winning those battles. Um, yesterday we didn't win that battle, and uh, you know we'll march on as we have previously in the uh, sort of win some lose some attitude, and and we're out to win the most and get to a majority, and nobody is close to that yet, and we're going to keep pushing to get Senator Cruz there first. At this point, is it all about the second ballot? We, we've looked at the math, and it seems mathematically impossible for Senator Cruz to to get it on the first ballot. Is it about the second ballot for your efforts now? 
Uh, well, we're we work to maximize votes on both. For instance, you know, North Dakota, Colorado. Uh, you were looking at first ballot votes um, where we swept the uh, states. Um, and uh, it, but when we're in North Carolina tonight, uh, it's about uh, having delegates who are committed to Ted Cruz. When we get past the first ballot, uh, we have almost half of the delegates in that state pledged to us, but we've already won more than that among the delegates who are running to go to Cleveland, and we are intending to continue that effort uh, to win these local elections and conventions all across the country, winning the hearts and minds of really conservative activists. And that's a natural constituency for Senator Cruz, especially when he's built a grassroots campaign on a conservative vision for economic growth, security, and increasing freedom. But realistically, how do you get to 1237 on the first ballot if you're losing even among those unbalanced delegates in places like Pennsylvania? That, that, that really can't happen, right? Well, obviously, you want to win the unbound delegates everywhere. Um, and in every unbound contest up to yesterday, we won. And um, frankly, I don't remember a lot of people in the media reflecting the opposite toward Donald Trump when we were winning all the unbound delegates. Yesterday was a good day for Donald Trump. He has done well in the Northeast, in states, especially in states that will never in a million years vote for a Republican for, for president, um, whereas Senator Cruz has done well in Republican states. And, uh, you know, I think that tells folks something. Only one of these two can carry on a national campaign that is grassroots-based, and you can see that by how we're absolutely cleaning their clock in the grassroots contest that is the delegate battle. Um, we're absolutely destroying them in that contest. And how anyone thinks uh, someone running for president can run a presidential campaign with almost no grassroots effort is beyond me. But uh, it seems that a lot of people voting for Donald Trump uh, don't really care about that or really haven't thought about that piece of, piece of what it takes to win. So the next state up, Indiana, uh, a lot of attention being paid on that. Is it Indiana or bust for the Cruz campaign? How important is this? Uh, well, we, we certainly take every one of these states as critically important. I think there's really only been one do-or-die state in the whole campaign for us, and that's Texas. Right. Um, Cruz's home state, of course. Cruz's home state. I mean, you got to win your home state to, to legitimately carry on forward. And, um, and, uh, and, and, of course, we did that swampingly. And, um, and by the way, we'll win those delegates. I predict 152 out of available 152 will be cruise people. Now, they won't be, they're bound for two rounds. So, uh, you know, but we're going to compete to win every one of those people uh, on the convention floor. Let me ask you to take us inside your efforts to reach out to these delegates. We've heard Donald Trump say uh, that, uh, that cruise forces are. Uh, buying cake for for delegates among yeah, other things. You know. What is what is it like? What do you, what's the conversation like when you're talking to someone who is an unbound delegate or likely to become an unbound delegate or a delegate that that could be available on a second, third, fourth ballot? What is the conversation like? Uh, well, it's very substantive. It's it's very much focused on what it is. Are their issues and concerns? I mean, it's much more of a listening exercise, just like your mother and my mother told us when we were growing up. You know. <laughs> Um, we're doing a lot more listening than we are talking. And um, to the extent that the areas of concern, be they 
policy or political or just who can win um, of these delegates uh, fall into categories consistent with Senator Cruz's strengths, we obviously push the strengths um, with the hopes that that is uh, enough to to get someone to commit to Senator Cruz at whatever point in the process they're legally able to to uh, to support him. Um, and uh, so it really varies delegate by delegate, and it's very important to be good listener. Um, and uh, for some of us who talk a lot, we have to really focus on that skill. And uh, I'm, I'm guilty as charged in that front, but it's critically important to being successful. I would also note that um, the easiest way to convince a delegate is to elect a cruise delegate. And, um, you know, that is our first focus. It's what we focus on every weekend. And every weekend you read reports about how we're just rolling up the delegates. That's what that is. Um, we don't have to convince a lot of these delegates. They're already convinced. They come in as cruise delegates. Now, many of them are bound to Rubio or Trump or whomever um, in the first or second round, but they become available to us to ask them to join our team after that point. And um, so we're, we're planning this all the way through. We're, we're working on doing as well as we can on the first ballot, um, and then we do the same thing with respect to the second ballot and, um, and so on down the line. And there are states that come loose in the third and fourth ballots. Mm-hmm. Texas, as I mentioned, they're bound for two ballots, so they come available in the third ballot if we get to a third ballot. And then there's one state, Florida, that is bound for three ballots. Right. Um, and, um, of course, when they bound them for three ballots, they thought they were going to be binding them for Governor Bush, and that's why they bound them for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are a few states like Wisconsin and Oklahoma and Alabama uh, where they are bound forever. They, they do not come unbound unless they're released by their candidate. Right. Um, and um, so those uh, folks, while we obviously want to get our people elected to those, um, the their ability to impact the convention itself is pretty much limited to things like rules and credentials and efforts along those lines. Sure. And to be, to be clear, does, is anyone actually getting cake or the political equivalent of cake? Are, are no, you... no, 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 no. Those are, those are some of the most scurrilous lies I have ever heard in politics. And um, it's complete BS. And frankly, if you knew our budget, you'd recognize that it's not even possible. Um, not even cheap cake? Like, like not, supermarket not brand, cake. nothing? Yeah, no, not even supermarket brand. And, and, and it's really just, this is more sore loser. I mean, we are absolutely kicking their butt in this competition, just destroying them. And so all they ever do is whine and complain and lie. And, you know, how about if you just get out on the field and compete? Uh, but that has not occurred to them as a solution that they've chosen to pursue yet. Ken Cuccinelli? former Attorney General of Virginia, and Ted Cruz's delegate guru, learning these rules like we are. Thanks for being here on Powerhouse Politics. Good to be with you. So, John, one thing I'm struck by by Cuccinelli, I think the, the biggest disappointment of the week for the Cruz camp was Pennsylvania. You know, they, they have shown the superior ground organization in previous contests, and Donald Trump woke up. 
Uh, and whether whether it's purely Manafort's design or just the maturation of a campaign, they knew what was going on with the delegates there, and they got their delegates. And uh, you know, by our count, uh, well more than a majority of those delegates in in Pennsylvania will be Trump delegates on the first ballot, and that takes off one big avenue that Ted Cruz thought he had to try to deny him the nomination. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, there's this geography too in terms of Pennsylvania. The, he was able to, after the New York loss to say, you know, a candidate won his home state, big deal. Uh, after you know Tuesday, this Tuesday's contest, he's able, you know, to say, well, you know, it's the liberal Northeast, but you know, Pennsylvania. I mean, you know, this is, yeah. you know, this is uh, this is a place where you, know, you, you would think, especially with, with the way that, that that primary is structured and the importance of each one of the congressional districts, some of them quite conservative and and uh, you know, by no means necessarily what you'd consider Donald Trump territory. And he, he whiffed. He whiffed entirely. He whiffed in terms of head to head against Donald Trump, and he and he whiffed in terms of yeah. getting his delegates nominated. You know, it was an offer, a, a very very bad night for for them. But we'll see. I mean, Cuccinelli, I think, still optimistic moving forward. No doubt. And that I guess is it for the Powerhouse Politics podcast. Don't forget to give us a little review. Uh, we'd like to hear what you think. If you have a question for us, we'll read it right here on Powerhouse Politics and try to answer it. Tweet at us using the hashtag Powerhouse Politics. Thanks for listening.